Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. We've got a very interesting guest today, haven't we? We have, who, full disclosure, is a very good friend of mine as well, Dame Irene Hayes. She's someone who, well, she had an incredible career, she's done lots of work in the civil service, but the big thing that she's known for now is Hayes Travel, which you might remember is the company that bought Thomas Cook just before COVID hit. They're very much like a high street travel agency, basically. You might see them on, if you watch Coronation Street, they've got one of their shops on uh, Coronation Street now as well. (laughs) That's a marketing deal they've got going on. But she's just a fascinating businesswoman who's had an incredible career. And I think you'll get a sense from the interview, Robert, that she's someone who's really obsessed with like people and, you know, training people. And that's how I met her and husband in the first place was this, you know, we we were at an event at a college in Sunderland and I met John Hayes and he was telling me all about how much he's, you know, really into supporting young people, which was very much my vibe. But they're also phenomenal business people. And Irene, I think we'll we'll show you that in this interview. I mean, I think the, the way that I think of her is that she's one of the unsung heroes of British entrepreneurialism. Yeah. So we're going to get her to tell her story. Yeah. Here's our interview with Dim Irene Hayes. Irene, thank you very much for coming in for a chat with us because, you know, you and I have known each other for quite a while. I feel like I know quite a bit of your life, but you've had so many different careers, done so many things. And, you know, the big one, of course, that a lot of people will know is is his travel and particularly when you bought Thomas Cook. But can you take us right back to the beginning? Because I love this story about how John, your little husband, set up his travel. Well, first of all, thanks for asking me. The company was first set up in him in County Durham in 1980 and John had just come back having tried a career in the city and really didn't like it at all so he came home to the northeast and was either going to set up an undertaker's or a travel agency. (laughs) (laughs) Two parts of life. I am so so pleased he chose the latter (laughs) and his mum had a children's wear shop in Seaman County Durham and his dad was a joiner in the colliery and so his dad was either going to make a counter and brochure racks or coffins. 
So the company was set up and you had to fight your way through baby grows and pants and socks to get to the back. And there was uh, the equivalent of what look, would look like a fish and chip shop counter now, quite high. And there was a brochure rack. And to separate the children's wear shop from the travel agency, we had one of those um, garden trellises where people used to click their cardigans on the way past. So after selling Butlins and Pontins, John decided he wanted to sell foreign travel as well. And to do that, he needed to apply for a license. And the process at that time was around the Association of British Travel Agents. What do you mean a license? In order that you could be bonded so that they thought you were a fit person to be running a travel agency. And then, of course, there was no email. So we still have the correspondence. And we wrote to ABTA and said, is it possible that we could have a license to operate a foreign travel agency? And they said, we'll have to inspect the premises. Of course, they came to inspect the premises and wound their way through said children's wear shop into the back and then left. And a couple of weeks later, a letter arrived and said, no, you can't because you're not really a proper travel agent. You haven't even got your own entrance. To which John responded in writing in a letter and said, is that the only reason? And they said, yes. And he said, well, it's come to my attention that there's a shop in London called Harrods. And in the back is a travel agency called Thomas Cook. Can you explain the difference? And they said, oh, no, have a license. <laughs> <laughs> he is a smart guy. And one of the things, I was talking to Steph about this, that's very striking is I looked at your account. You don't seem to have any bank debt. And I said, apparently, you've never really borrowed from banks. How did you set up without outside finance? No. The first thing to say was that there was never really any capital required. We didn't need any tech because none existed. So at that point in time, it was all done on the telephone and manually with manual tickets and transactions. So there wasn't any investment in that. As an agent, we have no big assets to buy. So as an agent for tour operators, they need the capital investment to invest in airplanes or cruise ships or hotels. We had none of that. Therefore, everything pretty much was provided by the family but not in terms of capital investment. In fact, even part of the counter was a recycled dressing table. So we opened, first of all, with one shop and then uh, opened a second in Sunderland and then two more, one in Washington and one in Houghton Spring, all in the northeast. But it was all organic and incremental. So up to this point, we hadn't really done any acquisitions at all. So we were just very, very careful. And because you're not having to invest in assets, yes, you need to invest in staff. But pretty much if you know what you're doing, you can start selling holidays straight away. So in advance of the first shop opening, for example, John decided to give a free taxi to the airport, which was really quite innovative at the time. And then when the second, third and fourth shops opened, it was free insurance if you booked a holiday. So the marketing was quite clever, which meant that you had cash flow from day one, which meant you could pay the wages at that time. So there was no real investment required. And all the way through, we've never really taken a lot of money out of the business because we have a, a very nice lifestyle in the northeast of England and we have pretty decent holidays. <laughs> and I've just had to let go my 16-year-old car because the mechanic said it wasn't well. So that's the reason why we have no debt. And we have never, even when we acquired Thomas Cook back in October 2019, we just used the money that was sitting in the balance sheet. So I haven't taken any 
big money. I take a salary, obviously, but don't take any money out for dividend for the last 19 years. And why not? Because we quite like investing in growth. We like investing in people, like investing in communities, do a lot of that sort of stuff and always have. So tell us the size of the business now. How many people do you employ? What's the turnover? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, what the turnover was in year one, and that was £812, but it was a part year. (laughs) So last year we did £2.18 in total transaction value and £51.2 in profit. And we employ just over 4,000 people directly and just over 600 home workers. What do you mean, um, home workers in this context? People who sell holidays, perhaps from the kitchen table or perhaps from the back bedroom. And that was huge. You know, when everyone during COVID fell in love with their dog or their garden. And or they, banana loaves. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> or what was that, sourdough? And yeah. um Lots of people decided that they didn't want the commute and they didn't want to go back. And that's a story that's been told many times. But many people wanted to stay working for Hayes Travel, but they wanted to continue doing it from home, which is what they'd needed to do, really, to look after our customers. It was the only way that we could look after our customers, many of whom who had saved up a lot of money for a holiday, which they didn't know what was going to happen to it and they didn't know what was going to happen to their money. So whilst we took some advantage of furlough, we actually couldn't. So we used to alternate. We couldn't take staff up and put them on furlough all the time. Otherwise, we couldn't look after our customers, which is why, you know, I think the company's done so well once the business came back in probably late 22, early 23, we really did have a very successful bounce back because of, I think, the way we looked after our people. Yeah, I mean, it was a a hell of a time for you, all of that, wasn't it? And as you mentioned, you bought Thomas Cook just before all of this kicked off. So can you tell us why you decided to buy Thomas Cook and then kind of what happened? So Thomas Cook failed on the 23rd of September of 2019. And I think we felt um, as sad as very many people for the the people who were employed by Thomas Cook. They were well-trained and they were good people and good at what they did. It wasn't their fault that the company had been run in a way which resulted in its failure. So we felt the same as everyone else, but you know, every cloud has a silver lining and very quickly our thoughts turned to, is this an opportunity for us to take over some of the branches of Thomas Cook? By then we'd already expanded into Yorkshire and around the South Coast, particularly around Southampton and Bournemouth, because we wanted to expand into the cruise business, which was exploding and still is to this day. So first of all, we started with an AA, very sophisticated AA Atlas roadmap. And we looked at where our stores were currently and looked at where the logical fit was in terms of economies of scale, of supervision and management and marketing, which are the two, two of the main costs So to get economies of scale of marketing, it's a good fit if you can have the same radio station or TV region. So we started to do that. And as the tension and the noise in the system and the publicity increased following the failure of of Thomas Cook, and there were demonstrations outside the House of Commons, there there were various things going on. It became apparent that there was quite a strong desire to have not just people cherry picking the very good shops. So having, I suppose, worked in Whitehall, I could feel the pressure that the British government were under, and Germany had already stepped in to help Thomas Cook in Germany, as you were probably aware. 
Anyway, we decided to colour in quite a few spaces around the kitchen table and we were looking at different places that we thought would be attractive to us and the information which had been released through the official receiver. Official receiver appointed KPMG. KPMG gave us data on the shops. But the last thing they wanted really was anybody cherry-picking and leaving lots and lots of shops. By then, all of the staff had been um, told that they no longer had a job. Some of them were lucky enough to see the video, some were told via text. So there were a lot of talented people out there and we wanted very quickly to move to a position where we could attract them. Anyway, as time went on, we came to the conclusion that the best thing to do would be to take on all of the shops and operate them and try and keep as many of the people as we possibly could. And that's what we did. And how many shops was that? It was 555. But in terms of the nature of the acquisition, it wasn't a straight acquisition in terms of buying them. It was a license to operate. And that the duration of the um, license to operate was extended for us during COVID. So we actually had Whilst it was an imperfect period of time, you could have a better understanding of how those shops would operate, having more time to look at their databases, time that we did not have between the 23rd of September and the 8th of October, when by uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, we had to put in our bid for why we believed that we could run the company. First of all, you know, there was a concern that they didn't want anyone who hadn't a good track record to take on the license to operate. But it was a very short period of time to that, that happening on the 8th of October. So the license to operate gave us an opportunity to look at which shops we wanted to retain. And as you can imagine, there were a lot, lots of duplicates. You know, we were quite big by then. We're big in that we had approaching 200 shops. So to take on the 555 was... Um, it was a massive expansion. This is the biggest thing you'd ever done. Yes. And how many of the shops did you end up keeping? About 380. It's always really fascinated me, the the focus on the shop element of your business, because I always think now, you know, travel, everyone just does it online, you know, but is there that need then for, I mean, your business obviously proves it is, but why do you think that is? What, what, what do you think is going on in the high street that makes people come into travel agents still? Obviously, I'm not naive. And I think that if people want a basic transaction, a flight or perhaps a simple package holiday, then they have a lot of confidence. If it's complicated or they're spending a lot of money or it's a very special occasion, they really want to know who they're booking with and they want that expertise, they want the reassurance, they want peace of mind, they want to know that their money is safe. And I would say that coming out of COVID, that became much stronger. So we have lots of new people. We have 41% of our customers and the old Thomas Cook store customers coming to his travel. And when we review the sentiment about why they're coming to us away from online or perhaps another travel agent, they're coming to us because of that reassurance and the fact that we have a, a, a good reputation. So do other independent travel agents, don't get me wrong. But it's that knowing where to go to, first of all, getting good advice at the outset, but then knowing where to go to if something goes wrong. But doesn't that because isn't the focus when people are given, you know, like cost of living crisis and people not having much money, isn't the focus on just getting the cheapest deal? And then isn't that harder for you to do if you've got all the overheads? No, absolutely not. I think that everybody, it doesn't matter, you know, which demographic, where, where you fall in the quadrant, you know, people who are sitting on several trillion pounds of savings 
and price is not an issue. And then people at the opposite end who save every single week of their lives so they can go on holiday when the factory closes down in August. Both of those groups of people want value for money. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you still want that value. And value isn't always about cost. And now people will explain that. So travel booking is an incredibly emotional transaction. You know, it's not like going and buying a widget or, you know, a some sort of commodity. It is increasingly about the experience and people are moving away from, or some people are moving away from buying stuff into putting a much higher value on experiences and time with family and friends and learning and understanding and exploring other cultures. And if they don't know how to do that, a travel agent that they know is the best person to go to, to give them that, that knowledge. So you've bought Thomas Cook, you've still got this big plan for, you know, the high street, then COVID hits. What was that stress like? Because obviously that was a really hard time in your life because that's also when you lost your husband. Yes. So after the early incidents at the back end of February in 2020 and the beginning of March 2020, um, it was apparent that, that this was not going to be a short-lived problem. And in fact, in the March of that year, we lost £11 million in one month. So just because bookings collapsed because of COVID? And many saying. people wanted their money back. Okay. So many people who had saved up for that holiday really didn't know what the future held. Did you so give was, people their money back? Were they yes, we did. And were they were entitled to it? or if, Yes. I mean, we didn't. At, at first, um, our natural instinct is to give people their money back. And then we came up with a protocol whereby, particularly with the good partners who we'd worked with since 1980, you know, by then, we'd worked with some of them for 39 years. They knew who we were. They knew we had a good reputation and that we would work with them in the future whenever that future allowed us to do so. So yes, we've refunded lots of people. Clearly, the staff were trained in the first instance to try and encourage people to rebook for another date. And in fact, many people rebooked two and three and four times over. Yeah, because it kept changing. The rules just kept changing and changing and changing, didn't oh, they? Oh, they did, yeah. The traffic light system. I mean, we had, you know, we, we had calls to have a look at how many changes there were. And there were just over 4,000 changes. So if you look at all of the different countries in the world, and then all of the different traffic light systems, and then all of the different vaccination requirements, and the, the different visa requirements, and then what you needed to do to get into the country, and then what you needed to do to get back into the UK, we listed them all, and there were just over 4,000 of those. So doing that online with somebody you'd never met before was really quite a challenge. So it's not surprising that 41% of people came back to find somebody that they trusted. So, But it was horrific. It was horrific for our people. Everybody was waiting for the news that either jobs would be lost or that their salaries would be reduced. And in fact, John and I went straight on to minimum wage because we knew we would have to take action to save the business. So we spoke to everybody and said we'd all need to take a reduction and told them we were going on to minimum wage. And in fact, John died, you know, in 2020, a year after the Thomas Cook deal on minimum wage. Yeah. It was that frightening, yeah. but it, it was horrific. But trying to keep all the poor staff who had to deal with, you know, but it's my daughter's wedding in Jamaica next year and we've booked 68 people with you. Are we going to be able to get those people into that hotel? 
And of yeah. course, the staff were saying, at the moment, that will not be possible. When it gets closer to the time, we'll put a note in our diary and we will come back to you. And then they would say, well, where could we go? And, and of course, you couldn't, you couldn't give that sort of advice. So for me, it's always the people at the front end who bear the brunt. Do you think it was just too much for John? Do you think that the stress of everything is what killed him? Um, I don't know that it was really. Um, we never really lost hope. And there were never occasions, you know, when we were sitting around the kitchen table with our head in our hands going, oh, woe is me. We just rolled our sleeves up. There were many things that we did. So we didn't put our head in the sand and we thought, well, we've got all of these talented people. What could they do if they're not selling holidays? And, and um, obviously we looked for alternatives to generate revenue. But I can honestly say there was never a moment where we were not optimistic and we had to be really, you know, when you're a leader and you have to stand in front of the video, we did videos in all different parts of our house, so see what our garden looked like and see what we we're having for lunch. And we would say what it was that we'd done that week to change things. One thing that we did do was to ask all of those talented people for an idea of how we could generate revenue, could cost, or just make things better. This is and asking your team? The entire team, all of them, all of the nearly 4,000 people and we had three graduates at the time, and the graduates collated all of this on spreadsheets. And some of the innovations were around not cleaning the windows as frequently, which was great when you've got the number of stores that we had. That's a big number. Some of them were extraordinary. For example, we used to pay a company to calculate the foreign exchange that we required, but we had some really talented developers, some of whom who had worked in the business for a very, very long time. And they said, we believe that Michael and David and Gary could do that. And um, can we not? Anyway, uh, that saved a quarter of a million. So in total, over the 12-month period, our people saved us £1.8 million pounds and the three grads collated it all and there were some overlaps you know don't buy our tea and coffee and biscuits anymore we will buy our tea and coffee and biscuits <laughs> but in every week if they thought that john and i were not being upbeat and perky enough we would get emails saying i'm from the thomas cook store and whatever we will pay you back you've you've got this let's just do this together so it wasn't as if we were on our own um it was that we had this vast array of incredible people who were all there too. But you were suddenly on your own and the responsibility that fell on your shoulders after your husband died must have felt overwhelming, no? Not overwhelming, no. No, I think um, with, with the, the responsibility is also a huge, huge advantage to be confronted with a situation that you just can't turn around and walk away and you just can't be overwhelmed because the job's too big and the job's too important. And but you had all that grief and, I mean, you know. Yes, I think I'm not sure that I would have felt any better personally had I turned around and walked away from the job in hand. In fact, I think I would have felt ashamed and John would never have wanted that and I couldn't have ever lived with that. So it wasn't a great time, particularly when you woke up at one o'clock, then half past one, then half past two, then half past three, then quarter to five and decided you should just get up and do some work, which is basically what I did. So I just basically worked, which is great therapy. And it, it is it is now. I absolutely love it. Have you ever taken any time off nope. since then? No. Nope. 
And you're sure that's sensible? I think I'm doing okay. You know, I mean, I do all the things you're supposed to do. <laughs> Take lots of walks, eat greens, have great friends and make the most of them, abuse <laughs> them. So I think I'm doing okay. Where, where does that come from? Because that's always been the thing that amazes me. I've never... See, you know, I'm getting a bit upset here talking about John, you know, a, and, and, and you're not. And where does that come? Where where does your strength come from? Is it how, you know, your background of growing up and working class family and, you know, and pit village? Is it that? Is it just what you've learned oh, through business yeah. or working in government? Where does it come from? Yeah, yes. I, I don't think I've got a particularly clever answer to that, but um, it's basically growing up in the back streets of Ashington in Northumberland two streets along from Jackie and Bobby Charlton. And clearly it was very different, you know, and I don't want to do all our yesterdays. But I, you know, I did used to go out as soon as I got in from school and I'd play out until my mother used to stand at the back gate and call me back in again. And in that environment, in the back streets of a mining village, you toughened up pretty quickly. There wasn't that much room for shrinking shrinking violets. And the summer holidays were full of adventures. And I'd run back in the house if I, if I was close enough to the house, stick my head under the tap, have a drink of water and run back out again until I was called back in. So I'm sure part of it is that. But my mother, who was profoundly deaf, um, which is why I could read before I went to school. So um, I remember my mother, who was a, a really serious influence on my life. My father was, but in a different way. But around the caring aspects and the voluntary work and the sense of community was my father. But my mother, in terms of the work ethic, she um, had three jobs. So she worked in a factory. She did the accounts for Providence. And she made clothes, which she copied from the woman magazine um, for the wealthier neighbours or the deputies at the pit or the people who owned the bakers or the butchers. And because she was deaf, she used to negotiate to have five books a week from the library instead of two. And Miss McGregor, the librarian, um, I was looking at my mother having five and I said to my mother, why can I only have two books? And she said, well, because I don't, can't watch the television, so I read books. And I said, well, I want five books. I can sit and read with you. And not watch, yeah, we hardly watch television at all. There's only two channels anyway. And she said, I said, will you ask Miss McGregor? She said, no, 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 no. You ask Miss McGregor. And I said, well, I, you know, I was just little. I said, I, I don't know what to say. And she said, well, go and think about it and then come back, you know. So whatever it was that I wanted to do, my mother would never step in and do the do it for me. And... She worked incredibly hard and was incredibly talented. And, um, you know, that's where I got my, you, well, I won't mention my obsession. But buttons, in, yeah. yes. So She's got like one of the biggest collection of buttons in the world, haven't you? So it's not, like, I don't know how you measure. I haven't been in other people's houses. I don't oh, I've seen them. I mean, you're, literally. But that, because your mum taught you to count with buttons, didn't so she? she? And did, then yeah. so when I was you little, travel the world collecting do, them. You know, five red, five green, five yellow, sitting in front of the fire on the rug. And, and then by the time I went to school, I could do my times table up to 12 and I could read, which was really not very good at all because people thought I was being a clever clock at school, so I had to pretend I couldn't. I mean, just very briefly, <laughs> tell us, what is a button collection? What's a rare and exciting button? Oh, I have a button which is verified as having been made by Josiah Wedgwood to try out ceramics. And it has a Matthew Bolton cut steel uh, frame. And I've taken it to the Wedgmood Museum and they've done all of the tests on it. But it's totally unwearable as a button. So I have lots of 18th century buttons which are hand-painted and the, I could speak for more than 45 minutes on buttons. <laughs> that that um, Buttons are a microcosm of art. Every great 
artistic culture around the world, be it um, Japan with uh, Shakudo or um, Shibayama inlaid, uh, you know, not very politically correct, ivory inlaid with um, jade and with coral and with gold. It's a microcosm and it was used, so Shakudo was used for the samurai swords. So it's five different metals and I have tiny buttons and the, the master craftsman would test their apprentices by asking them to create a microcosm of art on a button. So I have 18th century Italiante buttons with tiny little detail. I have Indian buttons uh, hand-painted with the single hair of a squirrel. So, yes. So you could have a museum, basically. Well, it's a long and short of it. <laughs> You've got thousands I'm of looking them. forward to it. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things that I know that you are committed to is training, uh, improving the skills of the people who work with you. This is an re- incredibly important issue at the moment. It's a rather, I thought, insightful piece by the former Bank of England uh, economist Andy Haldane just the other day talking about how British businesses in general don't take seriously enough investing in the skills of their people. T- tell us what you do, because uh, Steph was explaining to me that you know you you actually have to be inspected by Ofsted because you have a lot of young people who you take on as apprentices, I assume. Tell us what that's all about. I suppose the genesis of it was a very long time ago when I was doing my training around HR and there was a young lad who was working in the council depot and he was on a YTS. Do you remember YTS yeah, programme? And team. I was there to discipline him alongside an HR person and um, his line manager. On the YTS programme, you had a mentor, and this mentor was called Ted, and the young lad was called Gary. And um, Gary uh, drank a lot and didn't always get to work on time, and nor was his application the greatest. Anyway, he'd had two informal warnings, then he'd had a written warning, and this was last chance. So, of course, he came in and uh, they rehearsed all the arguments about why this was about to happen, and Ted was sitting there. So it got to the point where we were just about to say, well, we've had all of these chances now, and Ted said hang on a minute, hang on a minute, have you never had a drink? And can I just say that when the lad is on form, he's on form, and he could be a really talented mechanic given the time. So the head of HR said, go and sit in the canteen. And so off they went into the canteen and um, came back again. And we'd had a discussion and I said, go on, give him one more chance, (laughs) just give him one more chance. Anyway, in they came and um, the head of HR was really brutal with this lad, Gary, and she said, you've got one more chance because of Ted. So anyway, cut a long story short, and clearly I was told the second part, um, this guy who was chewing gum and in a big puffer jacket walked around the back of the depot and put his head on his hands and sobbed. And Ted said, what's wrong with you? Have you never been told off before? He said, oh, I said, I've been told off plenty but nobody's ever stuck up for me before. So, of course, um, I was smitten with the prospect <laughs> that you could actually, actually transform somebody's life. Any, anyway, there's, there was at the time a, a bus company called Go Northern. Gary went on to be the depot manager for Go Northern buses, which I think is absolutely fantastic. So, since then, I've continued throughout whatever, wherever I was, even even the fast streamers in Whitehall. But I mean, you continue to try and invest in young people. But latterly, we employed 546 young people as apprentices in Sunderland. But those are the people who we have built the business on. These people are extraordinary 
Last night in Durham, we had a long service ceremony at the Ramside Hotel um, for people who had worked for, with us for more than 20 years. So we had 14 people last night and three of them had worked for us for 30 years and started their career as an apprentice. So we find that apprentices keep the business current, they keep it fresh, they bring a, a vitality. Certainly they bring uh, a huge amount in terms of social digital and emerging technologies. And so they join you at the age of 16, is that oh, right? Well, we take apprentices on older than that, but we like younger apprentices because we believe that we can um, start them on a fantastic career path. So and please explain even, to me about this Ofsted thing because I'm, I'm confused about it. You can either um, employ a provider to do all of the training or you can employ the trainers yourself. But if you do that in a, a sort of an academy situation, it's really important that the same rigour of inspection takes place in the workplace with our trainers as it would in a college, a further education college or a school. So we are subject to the same off-stage requirements as a further education provider, which means that we have to be inspected by Ofsted. And we had our Ofsted inspection last year. So they look at all of the domains, you know, um, outs outcomes for young people being one of the most important where we are. Do, do you think you got as nervous as a teacher would about your Ofsted inspection? Ooh, no, because there are good things about Ofsted inspection inspections and there are things which are far too generic and have been built into the system because of one particular incident that happened in one particular school which is what tends to happen in government departments and you know I can uh, remember once that there was a really really unfortunate incident around a lamppost falling over and the amount of legislation around lampposts after that was bewildering so it's quite right that you, you take care but with me I'm a little more relaxed I know having done this for now probably 41 years, that I'm not saying that you don't need to be inspected, but you become increasingly um, knowledgeable about what good looks like for the outcome of a person for the rest of their life in a way that sometimes an inspection regime doesn't capture. So no, I'm certainly not as nervous as um, some people in schools would be because it's not my full-time career either. Right, there's loads more we want to ask you, but let's have a little bit of a break and then we'll be back with you chatting to Irene. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. 
This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. You were, were telling me, you know, once on a social occasion about using AI in the in the business to do with looking at how you look after people. I know you'll use it in lots of different ways, but can you just explain that to me about and explain to everyone about how you use AI when it comes to like you're looking after people and okay. monitoring them and things okay. like that? Well, go, just to go back to the Ofsted, safeguarding is a really significant part of looking after young people because they're still very young and impressionable. And it's necessary to satisfy Ofsted that you're looking carefully at the behaviours, not just of those young people when they're carrying out a work task, but what they're doing the rest of the time. And clearly, these people have been brought up in front of a screen, and that's where most of the transactions take place. So with their knowledge... They know that this is going to happen, yet somewhere they forget about this. We have a program which can identify keywords which should identify that a child, a young person is at risk. So, for example, you might have a number of keywords which would be uh, relating to self-harm or an eating disorder or um, radicalisation, if you were to look at the preventer anti-terrorism strategy, all of which have to be taught as part of the Ofsted requirements. So you, so you were monitoring it then? Yes. So, so you're monitoring what, their like social so the media artificial, artificial intelligence identifies in all of their emails whether there are keywords which keep repeating, which would perhaps indicate, you know, that they were vulnerable to self-harm or an eating disorder or something. And that creates a flag. And clearly this is in a confidential environment, but we have specific people with responsibility for safeguarding of young people who would be flagged to say this young person has had, you know, too much on protein shakes, cotton wool, you know, anything around an eating disorder, things that young people would do. It would pick that up, escalate it. We would look at it. Some of the time they're having fun and they think it's a funny thing to do. But these people are trained in safeguarding. And artificial intelligence is a force for good in that environment and it protects people. We don't do that to people over the age of 18 because that safeguarding responsibility doesn't exist. However, in every workplace you are entitled to have a look at the the emails and we're explicit about that. But, you know, there's a lot of fear about artificial intelligence and quite rightly so, you know, it's being quoted as the last invention of man because artificial intelligence would take over. But there there are a lot of good things it does for us in Hayes Travel, both in terms of our employees, such as the example I've given, but also for our customers too. And can I ask, you've had a very, we've talked specifically about Hayes because that's, where you are now, but you've had a very varied career. Do you want to just sort of run us quickly through the highlights uh, of that? Because um, you've done a lot of big stuff. I, I'm, I was going to try and find some something worthy, but I'm not. I'm going to be honest. So I had the the privilege of being invited to go on the main board of Sport England. So I love football. I absolutely. And you used to part on Sunderland as part of a consortium as yes, well. the Drummerville Consortium, yeah. yeah, which was led by Niall Quinn. So we bought the football club in 2004. Did you make any money from it? We didn't make any money, but we didn't lose any money. That's a really naughty question. That, But anyway, <laughs> going, going back to the, the first question, I'd been on the board and Trevor Brooking was the chair. 
And I had helped the Lawn Tennis Association for a different set of reasons to set up a development scheme on something called the Indoor Tennis Initiative and raise the funds to build the first one in Sunderland. So we had the first Indoor Tennis Initiative and then St Albans was, was second. And Trevor Brooking knew this and Kate Hoey was the minister at the time and she was going to, um, I think bring in Monopolies and Mergers Commission to the Premier League because of the amount of money which was being spent on elite, you know, top-level football and being sucked out of the grassroots development of soccer. So anyway, long story short, they decided to top-slice the television rights of all football in something called the Football Foundation and Trevor Brooking asked if I would go and be part of the Football Foundation. So for me, with a passion for football, to have um, work in a partnership with the Premier League, the FA, the DCMS and Sport England and have meetings just talking about football <laughs> and young people. I thought <laughs> I'd died and gone to heaven. So the, that's what I did. I tried to look at ways of making football great the way it was when I was a child with the demise of all of these grassroots developments where we used to just go and kick the ball on the soccer pitch. And in Sunderland, we had 72 football pitches. Now we're down to 35, half that number. That was, I think, for me, a big issue. And dealing with equality, disability, um, and focus on people who would perhaps not otherwise have an opportunity to participate so that, and I know I should have said something a lot more worthy than that, but the no, truth, no. truth of the matter is that I had a, I thoroughly enjoyed it. went to the last ball of Wembley. I helped design Wembley Stadium, did the Man City Stadium too. So appointed Lord Foster with a, my leg in a cast. He did his pitch. There were three architects for that one. So yes, I've had an interesting career. You you also ran a council as well, didn't you? In the yes. northeast. Tell us about that because, you know, obviously councils are in the news at the, at the moment, loads for basically going bust. What was it like for you running one and what do you think is going on that they're all in so much trouble? Okay, I, I think probably I had a fantastic position in that um, I went into a local authority in South Tyneside the first time I became a chief executive and it was the ninth worst performing in the country in 2002. And I could see the signs then of what would happen because the pressure on children's services and adult social care, even at that time in metropolitan authorities. So it's only metropolitan authorities who have responsibility for those things, not all of the 353 as there was at the time, although many have collapsed now to become combined. Even at that time, you had to start cutting all the other services because there was so much public scrutiny and so much cost in looking after the aging population. So you could see which way it was going then. But running a council is really not that different from running a private business in that if you look after the people and invest in the people who are doing the job at the front end and give consideration to them and listen to them about how doing what they do could be done better, you can always make everything better. But I would not want to work in a local authority today because many of those financial pressures are imposed from above and you have no control. So based on what you're saying then, do you think that people aren't in the councils who are running them aren't listening enough to the to the needs of the people? Because you're saying this is about like running a business. You've got to listen to everyone to, to get the ideas of how to run it. So do you think the councils aren't doing that? Is that part of the problem? Oh, I'm sure um, it'll be the same as businesses. There'll be some good ones who are and some who aren't, you know, and it used to be that um, I did at one point um, alongside the LGA go round inspecting councils and you'd find out all the great things and pinch all the great ideas and take them back and implement them if you had any sense. 
there will be good councils who are doing great things. And in fact, in the northeast, I would say this, wouldn't I? But the regeneration program in Sunderland is is phenomenal. You just have to take pictures of the riverside in Sunderland 15, 20 years ago and look at it today and to see that. And and there are exemplars across the country. It, it depends, though, on a successful joint leadership political and managerial. And if those the political and managerial leadership is not aligned, that's a recipe for disaster because it creates t- tensions within the council. But um, I think it used to be that councils used to listen to the frontline uh, members of staff a lot more in the days when Ben Page and Ipsos Murray uh, ruled which were the good local authorities and which were not, and took that feedback from 360 degree internal and external. And you would have some perception of what the customers thought of the bin service and so on and so forth. All of that's pretty much gone because all of this focus has had to go on the two big pressure points and they're the ones that get the most scrutiny in general. Just to, to wrap things up then, coming back again to you know, where we started with Hayes, what's, what's the future for Hayes for travel? Do you think what are the things where you know, going to be seeing over the next few years? So I think everybody knows that travel is in the top three desire purchases. So people will forego a three-piece suite or a kitchen refurbishment or a new car in order to have the family holiday. And all of the people who um, look at futures predict that that is not going to change, particularly in the UK because of some characteristics of the population of the UK. We are a small island of explorers who like to go and see what other cultures look like. And there's clear evidence that we as Brits travel a lot more because we don't have any boundaries where we could hop over into another country very easily and see what's going on. Uh, We have to travel more widely um, and we do. So I think the appetite for travel will continue. I'm really excited about what I would say is the benefits of a marriage of artificial intelligence and emotional quotient. I'm really excited about what that can do to the customer journey from inception, from putting great ideas in front of people before they even know they want to go to that place, exactly at the point of time when you know they are considering it. And following that through to make that journey as simple as possible, using artificial intelligence to give them the information in precisely the way they want it, when they want it. If they don't want to talk to a human being, to have the ability to do that online, to do it over social media, to have a um, a chatbot if that's what they want. And it's a transactional, where do I get my visa from this? I can't find it. So that's where we use artificial intelligence. And who are you working with on AI? Lots of different companies who are better than we are. So to use the example about touch points, for me, um, it doesn't matter whether the touch point is a human being or tech. It's about the quality of the touch point. So there's a fantastic company we're working with that captures all of the data on the interaction, either digital or social, called um, Amplify. And that will provide all of the data around your preferences. When you like looking at your holidays, it might well be with a cup of cocoa at half past nine or 10 o'clock or or it might well be on a Sunday morning. So they'll know when you are open to suggestion. And it basically looks at my behaviour online to work that out, does it? <laughs> Sounds a bit big brotherish. But it captures the touch points that you have or interactions. Well, it's true is what you just said. <laughs> <that you have. laughs> it's it, it captures the touch points, which means that we just get better at understanding our customer and signposting to them the things that we think that they would like at the time that we think they'd like to be considering it. Now, I'm slightly 
concerned that we've taken up an enormous amount of your time. Yep. I, I would have, I would of course have spent the entire hour talking to you about why Sunderland and the North East voted for Brexit, but maybe you can come back and explain that uh, to me on another occasion. <laughs> but at least we got the result returned first. Every cloud. You did. <laughs> you Every did. cloud. You did, yeah. We knew what was happening once we saw that result. Historic. Yeah, thank you, Irene. It's been lovely uh, to chat to you. And uh, So again, nice to meet so you. Many... Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So that was fascinating. What a story. What were your highlights? Uh, well, I'm just fascinated by, you know, this whole idea that you can still have high street travel agents. You know, I just assumed that that was not a solid business model anymore. So to think, you know, people still want to go into physical shops to, to book their holidays and the fact, you know, they're making money from it shows that that is the case is, is really interesting. And I think the other thing that I thought was really instructive. We're obsessed, obviously, about how you grow a business, how you create a business. But the most extraordinary thing about her story is how her business not only survived, but actually thrived after, you know, the greatest challenge any business could possibly mm. imagine. If, you know, for a travel business, COVID was lethal. And she talked about how she didn't just close the business down and take furlough. She kept people on staff. She took minimum wage herself because she felt it was important to continue to have the relationship with their customers in the hope the customers would come back after COVID. And of course, the customers have yeah. come back. And, you know, she pointed out that in her last published results, they've made 50 million quid of profit. They are stronger than they've ever been. And then to also think about the personal challenge for her, you know, midway through that awful COVID crisis for her partner, business partner and partner in life to die. Mm -hmm. And yet to keep everything going in those circumstances, as I say, it, it sort of resilience doesn't even begin to oh. really capture how she held it together, yeah. uh, both personally and for the business. Re really inspiring, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, she's someone who I have always looked up to. And uh, I should point out as well, it was her 70th birthday recently. And as part of it, her daughter said to us all, you should all buy a button for Irene because what you buy a woman who basically you know is a, <laughs> a rich businesswoman what do you get them for their birthday the pressure I felt to get a button was unbelievable I ended up in this shop in near Regent Street which was one of the oldest button shops in England chatting to this little old woman who'd been you know collecting buttons for years and I was like I just need something impressive anyway but it, and then we all had to give them to Irene so and what Irene, did you get I got one which was like a coin button um, and it was from because I thought she had to guess who the button was from you see and I thought the rest is money coin money but, but I she, mean, she didn't say to you I've got four swapsies <laughs> Tell you what, it only cost me £1.95 though, so <laughs> I think it was a bit of a, not quite like her collection. Anyway, uh, yeah, fascinating. And, um, and thank you very much for introducing me to her. I thought, oh, I thought yeah, she no, was uh, a remarkable person. She's great on a night out as well, I should say too. Anyway, <laughs> um, but we'll have more interviews for you. So do send in suggestions as well. Maybe you're someone listening to this who thinks we should interview you. Um, but email us, restismoney at gmail.com or you can contact us on our social media pages as well. See you soon. Bye-bye.